It has been such a blessing to be here over the last three weeks. It's been a great joy to see you all again and to talk with many of you, spend time with you. We look forward to the next time we get to come back. We're willing, we just have uh, one more year in California, and our commitment is to come back here. Don't worry. Don't be like, oh, he might just get caught and stuck in California. No, no, no. We have no desire to stay there long term. I don't want a THM there. I can do that modular from long distance, but uh, our commitment is to come back here. The Lord is still sovereign. We don't know all things, but our commitment is to come back here because we love you. You're our church. Let's uh, pray before we look at the word. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you so much for the scriptures. Lord, it is the light to our paths. It shows us your wisdom, and your wisdom is superior to any so-called wisdom in the world. Well, this is something that we've looked at over the last few weeks. But Lord, as we look at another fresh set of wisdom today, I pray that it would, it would impact us with just how beautiful it is, how wonderful it is, how great your design is for your church. I pray, God, that you would see so fit as to work among the people today by your spirit to encourage them, to embolden them, to convict them, to fill them with power by your spirit so we can do the tasks that have been set before us. Please give me the ability to speak and explain it clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Who is it that God has called to ministry in his church? Has God called you to ministry? Has God called the men in this church? What about the women? You know that today's Christianity has inherited certain traditions when it comes to terms like calling or ministry. When we think of calling, we often think of some supernatural tug of the heart towards the pastorate or some other kind of formal ministry. And for ministry, we often think strictly in terms of pastoral responsibility. Oh, you're going to enter the ministry. Oh, that means leading, teaching, preaching, maybe counseling. Thus, while we are eager to see more men obey their calling to pastoral ministry, we can sometimes end up thinking that most, if not all, the responsibility for building up the church falls on the shoulders of its formal leaders. Ministry is for the church staff, for their wives, we might think. It's for the pastor, it's for the elders, it's for the deacons. But it's not my calling. Now, you might be surprised to hear this, but such thinking is actually misguided and unbiblical. What is the real answer to the question of who has God called to ministry? Who has God called to serve in his church? Everyone. Yes, the answer is everyone. We will serve in different ways and in different capacities. Not everyone will teach publicly. Not everyone will have a formal role or an official title. But make no mistake, God's design for his church, his perfect wisdom, is that every single person, every true member of Christ's fellowship, will will actively use their God-given gifts to serve and build up Christ's body. All Christians are called, in one way or another, to ministry in Christ's church. Now the question is, are you answering that call? Are you obeying your Lord Jesus in this area? Do you need some help? Or do you just give excuses? I believe we could use some help in this area. We could benefit from some clear instruction and encouragement. And God, our great God, in his grace, he's precisely provided that by the hand of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. So please, take your Bibles and open to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 16. If you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring it with you, please feel free to use the Bible provided to you in the pew in front of you. You can find our passage if you turn to page 1171. We're in Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 16, and that's page 1171 in the Pew Bible. Before we look at the passage, let me just remind you a little bit about its context, its background and situation. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Ephesian church. This church mostly consists of newly converted Gentiles, non-Jews. And Paul writes to remind them of their great salvation and to encourage them to live holy lives worthy of their great salvation inheritance. 
You have a great salvation, now live worthy, a, a life worthy of it. In fact, in Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul begins explaining what this holy life looks like, what this worthy walk looks like. But before even talking about the various sins that God's people are to put off and the various righteous thoughts, words, and deeds that God's people are to put on, the first application that Paul brings up has to do with church unity and church service. In Ephesians 4, verses 2 to 6, Paul stresses that all Christians, whatever their background, they have become one in Christ and they share all the same blessings. They are also to work to preserve the unity of Christ's body. They are to be patient and loving toward one another because they're all one. They all have the same things, the same blessings. But this unity does not mean that everyone is exactly the same or that everyone is simply just (laughs) supposed to sit back and just tolerate one another. No, there's more to it. There's more to the unity that God has designed for his church. There's another essential element which Paul discusses in our section. Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 16. So let's look at that now. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What is Paul's main instruction here? Every believer is called and designed by Christ to serve Christ's church according to their unique gifting. Notice that such is the expected result of receiving such a great salvation. Have you received the same salvation as these ancient Ephesian believers? Well then, you have the same call as them, according to the same great design. In fact, in revealing God's design for the church, Paul also explains why using your gifts is so expected and essential as part of your worthy walk. That's what I would like to look at you, look at with you specifically this morning. In Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 16, Paul gives three reasons for you to obey Christ's call to use your gifts to minister to his church. I'll mention the reasons now and then we'll go through them specifically. First, Christ conquered to give you your gifts. Second, Christ gave you teachers to train you up in your gifts. And third, Christ designed your gifts to help bring the church to maturity. Let's hear how the the Apostle Paul explains each of these reasons. The first reason you are to obey Christ's call to use your gifts in ministry is because Christ conquered to give you your gifts. You see this in verses 7 to 10. But start with, with just verse 7 with me. Look at it again. It says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now you see the contrasting word but there, beginning that verse. In contrast to what Paul just said, how we are all one in Christ, had the same salvation and blessings, we are nevertheless different. How so? 
Verse 7 says, each one of us was given a grace, an unmerited act of favor from God. According to the measure of Christ's gift, it says. What's this talking about? Well, you see, in Christ, according to his great divine wisdom and kindness, he has shown grace by giving a gift to each one of us, just as he pleased. Not all have the same gift, and not all have the same measure of the gift. But notice it does say, to each one of us. This means no one is excluded. Not by gender, not by age, not by race or social station, not even by the years that one has been a Christian. What's the implication? If you're in Christ this morning, you've received an important gift from Christ Jesus the Lord himself. Now what is meant by this term gift? Well, sometimes the New Testament talks about a singular gift or a plural gift. And comparing what's written here in 1 Corinthians 12, I think the best way to understand it is this gift is a unique combination of spiritual strengths and abilities, often with a particular specialization. For example, one Christian may be particularly gifted when it comes to encouraging others. That's his specialty. Or another person may be particularly gifted in organizing and administrating. That's his specialty. But these specialties are part of a larger package that has been gifted by the Lord to each person. And so a person may have multiple strengths. It's not as if a Christian who's gifted at encouraging is actually terrible at everything else. No, he has a whole set of abilities and strengths. We all have multiple abilities and strengths, but at different levels, and distributed exactly the way Christ in his wisdom decided to distribute it. It was a good way he did it, and it was an important way. Each one of us has been given this package of strengths and abilities, spiritual strengths and abilities, as Christ's gift. Or you could even think of that, the gift is a collection of spiritual gifts. Now Paul is clear that we did not do anything to earn or deserve these gifts. They are gifts, after all. So what happened that Christ would give us these gifts? Well, he's going to tell us. Verses 8 to 10. Look at those again with me. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended, it's himself also he who ascended, far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Okay, these verses may sound a little bit confusing at first, but they actually become a lot clearer once we realize the meaning of a few details. Notice the he of verse 8. Who's he? Well, that's Christ. He was mentioned in verse 7. What did Christ do? Notice verses 8 to 10 talk a lot about ascending, going up, and descending, going down. Uh, what's this all about? Without spending a lot of time to discuss it right now, the best way to understand these descriptions is to see them as referring to Christ's descent to the earth in his incarnation, to the earth itself. That is, the Son of God humbled himself to become a man to save his people from sin. And accomplishing that, he ascended to heaven. He had victoriously finished his salvation work, and he received again his glory. And he will one day fill all things. You see, in these verses, Paul is emphasizing the contrast and Christ humbling himself by going to the lowest places and now being exalted to the highest places in victory. Now with that in mind, look back at verse 8. Paul says that Christ specifically, in his ascending to heaven, his going back to heaven, he realized two significant results of his salvation work. The first is that Christ led captive a host of captives. That is to say, in returning to heaven, Christ figuratively brought all of his rescued people with him. Christians are now free from their captivity to sin and to Satan, and they are safe from God's wrath. They have been led into a secure home for them in heaven. Christ himself leads him there as conqueror. So that's the first thing. But there's a second. It also says in verse 8, and he gave gifts to men. Christ gave gifts to men. 
in Christ's ascension and is going back to heaven, Christ was able to distribute gifts to his now redeemed church, just as verse 7 was saying. And this distribution, by the way, was fundamentally accomplished on the day of Pentecost. If you go to Acts chapter 2, you will hear about Christ sending the Holy Spirit to the church. The Holy Spirit came to indwell and empower all believers for service according to different spiritual gifts. But Pentecost was just the inauguration of this distribution. Fundamentally, the church had received the gifts. That outflow continues today. Those spiritual gifts still are given and being given to God's church even now. To summarize the thrust of verses 8 to 10, then, we could say this. Christ's redemption victory, epitomized in his returning to heaven, it not only brought about deliverance of believers from sin's captivity, but it also enabled Christ, like a plundering conqueror, to distribute gifts among his people. Now, Christ already had the gifts. It's not like he wrested them away from Satan or something like that. No, he already had them, but Christ could not distribute the gifts until he had totally accomplished salvation by his life and death and resurrection. So we can accurately say then that Christ's redemption victory was in part to give you your spiritual gifts. Just as a conquering king purposes to hand out spoils from his conquest to his people. And this distribution, by the way, was foretold in the Old Testament, which is why, if you have the New American Standard, verse 8 may appear in capital letters in your Bible. This is because the translators are letting you know this is an Old Testament allusion or an Old Testament quotation here. In verse 8, Paul partly quotes and he partly summarizes Psalm 68. In Psalm 68, the divine Messiah is partly described as the exalted conqueror who receives gifts from men as expected tribute. Conquerors, they receive tribute. People are saying, oh, we bow down to you. We don't want to mess with you. We're going to give you some gifts. And Messiah is described that way. Psalm 68, 18 specifically says that. But the rest of the psalm, other parts of the psalm, describe the divine Messiah as the generous king who distributes comforting and empowering gifts to his people, which is what Psalm 68.35 says. With this Old Testament connection then, Paul emphasizes how this gift distribution to Christ's church, it was always in God's plan. It was always graciously purposed by our God for his people. So then, Christian, consider the grace that has been shown to you personally and corporately, through Christ. As your conquering king, he's not only led you out of bondage, if he in fact does so, as you have repented and believed in him, but he's also given you an undeserved gift as spoil from his triumph. So what do you think you're supposed to do with that gift from Christ? Use it. Enjoy it. Enjoy using it. It's called a gift for a reason. It's not a burden. It's a gift. But consider how offensive it is when someone does not use or appreciate a gift. Imagine you give someone a special gift. You thought about it intensely beforehand before you gave it to that person. And you know it's exactly suited to them. It's something they can get a lot of use out of you know will bring great benefit to their lives and to the lives of others, you secured this gift at great cost to yourself. And out of love, you present to them this special gift. But then you see that they do not even acknowledge the gift. They just take it and set it aside. Don't even unwrap it. Or they tell you they're really grateful But days go by, you keep checking in with them, you say, hey, how's that gift working out? And they seem embarrassed every time you ask. They come up with various excuses as to why they never unwrapped it or why they never used it. It becomes clear to you that they don't really care for your gift. How would you feel in that situation? 
Would you not feel hurt, disappointed, bewildered, betrayed? Would not even your sense of justice be aroused? How could they do this? Don't they know how valuable and purposeful this gift was? Don't they know the love that was poured into this gift? Now, brethren, we are imperfect gift givers. But if even we would feel the offense, how much more Christ, the perfect gift giver? Will we really display an incomprehensible ingratitude to our king by neglecting his gift that he gave to each one of us? Should we not instead thank him for the gift and use it just as he intended? It was a grace. So this is our first reason that we are to obey Christ's call to use our gifts to minister in his church. Christ conquered to give us our spiritual gifts. A second reason appears in verses 11 and 12. Christ gave you teachers to train you in your gifts. Look again at verse 11. Paul explains more about God's design for his church. He says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. I take it most of you are not surprised that God designed leaders and teachers to help build up the church. And after all, that's what I'm trying to do for you right now, right? I'm a teacher. I'm trying to bring you the word of God so that you can be trained and built up. But notice a few details here in verse 11. The beginning of verse 11 says, And he gave. Who's he? Christ. We're still talking about Christ here. So along with giving out spiritual gifts to every member of the church, Christ also gave gifted leaders and teachers to the church. Like the spiritual gifts, these gifts, these gifted men, they are to be appreciated and properly utilized. Take advantage of the leaders and teachers you've been given. As 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13 also says, appreciate them. Benefit from them. But what kind of leaders did Jesus give? Got a number of categories mentioned here. The first two, apostles and prophets, they're not around anymore. Apostles were those special eyewitnesses and personally appointed representatives of Christ who went out as messengers of the good news. These apostles had signs and wonders to confirm them as true messengers of God, as Hebrews 2.4 says. Some of them wrote the scriptures, which we have today. Prophets were another first century group. Prophets received direct revelation from God and then perfectly made known the words of God to God's people. Both apostles and prophets were extremely important for establishing the foundation of Christ's teaching in the church. Ephesians 2.20 actually says that. We Gentiles, those who are in the church, Jews and Gentiles really, we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he says. We've been built on top of their work and their teaching. But as the apostles wrote down the teaching of Christ in Scripture, the apostles and prophets, along with their unique giftings, they passed from the scene. They accomplished their purpose. So then, while we can and should be grateful for the gifts of the apostles and prophets in the past, I mean, after all, we're still benefiting today from the Scriptures the apostles gave us, that Christ gave us through the apostles. We should not be looking for new apostles or prophets today. But the other three kinds of leaders mentioned here do continue, and they are special gifts of Christ for his church. We have here evangelists, those who are gifted in preaching the gospel and discipling new believers. Today's missionaries would fit into this category. We also have pastors who are leaders in the church who care for God's people like shepherds and feed people God's word. And then we have teachers, those who are skilled at explaining and applying God's word to others. Now, some have said that pastors and teachers really describe the same position here. So rather than pastors and teachers, we should understand the phrase as pastor-teachers. That's a possible interpretation. And I do agree that grammatically, Paul emphasizes a close connection between these two roles, pastor and teacher. Nevertheless, Paul did put a conjunction between these two words. And if you just think about it, while all pastors are teachers, not all gifted teachers are pastors, even in the church. Therefore, I see the phrase 
pastors and teachers here as describing two different but closely related kinds of gifted men in the church that Christ gives to the church. But what specifically are these teachers supposed to do for the church? They're supposed to help, obviously, but what do they do? Now let's look at verse 12. It says, He gave all these people for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Ah, now here's a very key part of our passage. And I think it's often misread or misunderstood. Did God give teachers to do all the work of service and to do all the building up of the body of Christ? They have a part in this ministry, to be sure. But what's the main role of these teacher leaders? They are given by Christ to equip the saints for the work of service. The teachers are there to put the tools and the equipment of service in the hands of the saints. That's their main role. Who are the saints? That's all of us. The word saint just means holy one. And it's a term the New Testament, even the Old Testament uses many times to describe those who are saved and made holy once and for all by Christ. So in other words, if you're a true Christian, no matter how imperfect you are, you are a saint because of Christ's work. God gave teachers to the church to make saints like you able to do the work of ministry. What is this service, though, this work of ministry? Notice the end of verse 12 says, to the building up of the body of Christ. As we saw earlier, Christ has already made all of his people into one body in him, but we need to grow. This body needs to grow. It needs to grow in holiness, in knowledge of God, in love for Christ, in boldness, in preaching the gospel, and many other things. We're like a building, a building that's been built, but it needs ongoing work. It needs repairs. It needs upgrades. It needs expansions. Not unlike our church building that we have here. And God gave teachers of his word to the church to help all the members of the church do the ongoing construction work necessary for the spiritual building of Christ. Anything that is needed or that helps build up Christ's body is what you and I as saints have been called to do. So this includes encouraging, admonishing, teaching, giving of time and resources, exercising discernment, meeting physical needs, forgiving, peacemaking, discipling, praying, evangelizing, and much more. Now all of us are to participate at some level in each one of these activities because they're commanded of all Christians in Scripture. It's not like say, oh, I'm sorry, forgiving is not my gift. That's someone else's gift in the church. No, we all do that to some level. But we are especially to do what we are gifted to do. What corresponds with the special gift that Christ has given us? That which we are uniquely skilled at doing. That which we uniquely enjoy doing. Everyone has a gift and a necessary role. No one can say that his or her gift is unnecessary. After all, the church is, besides being a building, it's also a body. It's a living, breathing organism. Consider our human bodies. They were designed for every part to fulfill a specific function. No part of the body is truly a waste, though some parts are certainly mysterious. <laughs> now, it's true that God designed our human bodies to work even when some parts are not functioning correctly, when some parts are sick or damaged or even missing. For instance, you can survive if you only have one kidney. Nevertheless, the body is better when it has all its parts and when they're all working. No kidney is truly redundant. Paul says the same thing here about Christ's body. We all have an important role. We all have a necessary place. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. No organ of the body can say, Ugh, because I'm not a hand, I'm unnecessary. The body will get on just fine without me. I mean, imagine if your foot said that about your body and decided that it was going to withdraw from your body or just sit there and do nothing. They went AWOL. Would your body get on just fine without your foot? 
No, exactly. It would not get on fine. It would be severely impaired. And what about the foot? Would the foot get on well if it just cut itself off and the rest of the body, or if it remained attached, but just let the body languish? No, the foot would suffer as well. It could even die without the rest of the body. God says the situation is the same for us in Christ's church. All of us are necessary. All of our gifts are necessary. Every organ and sinew of Christ's body is to work together in service for the edification and growth of the entire body. We are all to participate in the work of building up according to our gifts. And there's something beautiful about that picture, by the way, and that is there's a a sanctified self-interest. As you benefit the body, guess who else benefits? You, because you're part of the body. The body suffers, you suffer. The body benefits, you benefit. That's part of Christ-wise design. So brothers and sisters, do you recognize that Christ has personally called you to join the work of building up the church? It's your calling. Do you appreciate that Christ has also given you leaders and teachers precisely to help you to be able to do this work? That's their main role. These teachers don't replace your work. They equip you for your work. They lead you in the work. So surely, you will not really disobey Christ's call to ministry when he's provided so abundantly for you. So, the first reason we are to obey Christ's call to use our gifts, to minister to his church, is that Christ conquered to give us our gifts. Second reason is, Christ gave his teachers to train us in our gifts. And now we look at the third reason. The third reason to obey appears in verses 13 to 16. Christ designed your gifts to help bring the church to maturity. We see the goal of our service and upbuilding efforts identified in verse 13. The goal is the spiritual maturity of the church. Actually, this same goal is communicated in a number of different phrases, and we'll briefly look at each one. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. We all need to have a full, strong, and common understanding of the faith if we're really to be mature. What's the faith? That's God's truth as revealed in the scriptures. We are united essentially in Christ by the Holy Spirit, but not everyone in the church has a solid grasp on sound doctrine or sees its proper application. We need to become united in this way also. What else do we need to attain as part of maturity? Next phrase is the knowledge of the Son of God. Wait a second, has each of us come to know Jesus Christ yet? We have, but not the way that we could or the way that we ought. There's much more to know about the Son of God, which we don't know yet. Which is exactly why Paul prays earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3, that believers would grow in the knowledge of Christ and in the knowledge of his love. That's why I prayed what I prayed earlier. We need to attain the knowledge of the Son of God. And thirdly, Paul says we also work with the goal of becoming a mature man. We want to become one who has sufficiently grown up in the truth. And finally, Paul says we must grow to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, we aren't simply just to grow from a babe, spiritual babe, to a strong adult. We're actually supposed to grow into the image and likeness of Jesus himself. We're supposed to look like him. In a sense, we're to have his height, his features, his development, his musculature. Now, of course, none of us individually will look like Christ perfectly until we are in glory. But as a church, we must grow to the point that we genuinely resemble him. Christ is the epitome of a spiritually mature person. As God, he sets the standard. We want to become like him as a church. We want the resemblance to be so strong that it's like someone can see we're family. They can look at us and say, you know what? You remind me of Jesus Christ. Is he your brother? 
Or, you know what, you remind me of God. Is he your father? Now, no one's going to say that to us literally, but you get the point. People should be able to see the resemblance to Christ. Paul gives us these different descriptions of spiritual maturity to help us grasp what our goal is. As the people of God's church at Calvary, we should ask ourselves, have we reached this kind of maturity? As our church and its various members and attendees become united in the faith, become full of the knowledge of the Son of God, become like a mature man, and become like the very image and stature of Christ. Well, I praise God for the growth and the maturing that God has accomplished in our church. Surely we need more growth, don't we? Where is this growth and maturity going to come from? From the church leaders? Yes, but not just from them. It will come from each equipped member of the church using the gifts given to them by Christ for the building up of the whole church. That's God's design. So brethren, are you seeing again your calling to ministry from Christ? Do you see why it's so necessary that you put your gifts to use? The church needs you for its growth to maturity. And you might be wondering, well, why is spiritual maturity so important? Well, hopefully part of the answer is self-evident. God commanded it. It enables us to know God and display God to the world. It fulfills God's good design for the church. It will result in the blessing of, the God, blessing of God on the church, corp- church corporately and individuals in the church. But Paul is going to highlight two specific, extremely important outcomes of the church's reaching maturity. And these we see in verses 14, 15, and 16. Notice how verse 14 says, as a result. As a result of what? As a result of what Paul just said. The church reaching spiritual maturity by the various utilized gifts of its members. What will be the crucial results of this development? First is given in verse 14. We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. The first very important outcome of the church's maturity is protection from deception. The church needs protection. If we don't grow to maturity, notice Paul says, we'll stay children, even infants who can't protect themselves from danger. Ever seen or held a newborn? Oh, they're cute. But they're completely vulnerable completely defenseless. Paul says, that is what we will be if we as a church don't grow into maturity in Christ. We'll stay defenseless infants. We won't be able to detect danger, much less do anything about it. Paul also says, we'll be like a ship caught without anchor on a stormy sea, tossed all over the place by all kinds of winds and waves, no stability. What would blow us around like that? What so endangers us? What will blow us all over the sea? Falsehood, error, false teaching, false doctrine. Without spiritual maturity, we as a church and we as individuals will inevitably, not maybe, inevitably be deceived by trickery, by craft, by scheming, by attractive lies posing as truth, by error mixed with the truth, by wisdom so-called that seeks to modify or even supplant God's wisdom. You know, we've talked about this over the last two weeks. There are always wolves and false shepherds who are eager to take over and abuse Christ's flock. There are always naive fools who think they can help or even save Christianity by mixing Christ with Antichrist. And then there is Satan himself, the master deceiver, who is eager to have his lying leaven invade and pervade God's churches. Only a mature body, only a mature man can fend off such deceptions, attacks, and schemes. He'll have the strength, he'll have the knowledge, just like a strong adult has. 
And don't say to yourselves, oh, aren't you just being alarmist? We're not in any real danger. We're, we're smart here at this church. We're not in danger. Just look all around us. Look all around us in Christianity and how church after church has been subverted by some kind of error or false doctrine. Prosperity gospel, materialism, pseudoscience telling you you can't believe the Bible or you have to reinterpret the Bible. Charismatic obsession. Legalism. Licentiousness. License to just live however way you want because Christ accepts you as you are. How did these things get in? Didn't people see? Didn't have the maturity. They weren't strong adults. And we will be subverted by one of those poisons or one of those lies or a new one or a recycled one, just like those, those other churches, unless we grow to maturity. But we won't grow to maturity, brothers and sisters, if each one of us is not eager and obedient to use our gifts. without you obeying the call of Christ to use your gifts in the church, our church will, may, will remain unprotected from the wiles of Satan. And don't just think about yourself. Think about your brothers and sisters. They need protection. So for the sake of your own soul and for the sake of your brethren, obey Christ's call to use your gifts so that our church might become mature. And there's another important outcome explained in verses 15 to 16 that's somewhat surprising. Look at those verses again. <clears throat> but speaking the truth in love, <clears throat> we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now you might hear these verses and think to yourself, wait a second, isn't Paul repeating himself? Didn't he already explain this concept of the body growing and building itself up according to what each individual member supplies? No, Paul's not needlessly repeating himself. Because remember, verse 14 pointed us to an outcome of maturity as a result. As a result of our maturity. On the one hand, we will no longer be like an infant caught helplessly in danger. By contrast, on the other hand, and notice verse 15 starts with a contrasting word. What will we obtain? Second crucial outcome. A greater ability to grow. Maturity gives us a greater ability to grow. After all, maturity is not the end, right? Even when one is at maturity, he still has room to grow, still room to advance. But we can only pursue that further growth if we first reach maturity. To help us understand this, think again about the maturation process of a human. We want every child to grow up to become an adult who can live successfully in the world. But does a parent, when he sends his kid off to college or he sees his child obtain his first job or live on his own, does he say to himself, ah, I'm so glad that my child has finally reached his full potential? No, of course not parent realizes that the child has only successfully reached the starting point for realizing his full potential. He's only reached maturity, not maximum growth. So it is with Christ's church. Brothers and sisters, if we are to grow to maturity as a church, if we really accomplish that, then we multiply our ability for further growth in Christ. Because what do we become characterized by? We all learn to speak the truth in love which is essential for any upbuilding, for every Christian. We all grow in all aspects of our lives to be more like our head, Jesus Christ. We all draw upon the life, power, and direction of our head to do the ministry set before us. And we all fulfill our functions within the body for the entire body's continual growth, both for new members placed into the body as they repent and believe, and for existing members. You know, so many people in the world are looking for some sort of philosophy or system that will produce a utopia on earth, a community in harmony in which every person contributes his own special abilities for the greater good of all. 
But you know what? The world will never find that. The only way that we will find such harmony, such unity and diversity, is in Christ and God, God's design for the church. It's a wonderful reality. I mean, can you think of it? Everyone speaking the truth in love. Everyone using their gifts. The whole body being firmly drawing on the life and power of Christ. Wouldn't that be wonderful to see that fully realized here at Calvary? Don't you want to see that for our church? Don't you want to experience the blessings that come from being part of such a church? If you do, then it starts, brethren, with each one of us obeying our call from Christ to minister our gifts. As we minister our gifts, we help bring the church to maturity. And it's only when the church is mature when it can, it can pursue that further growth. Isn't the Lord's design for his church so wonderful? Isn't it so right and good? This is what we've beheld today. We've seen three reasons why we must all obey Christ's calling to minister our gifts to his church. We saw Christ conquered to give us our ministry gifts. Christ gave us teachers to train us in our ministry gifts. And Christ designed our gifts to help bring the church to maturity. And that maturity is so necessary because it protects the church from deception on the one hand and it gives the church an even greater ability to grow on the other hand. So in light of this teaching, how will you respond to Christ's call today? Will you make the use of your gifts to the church a priority in your life? Obviously, one huge implication from this text that we've studied is that you need to actually be in church. Be a genuine part of your church. Because how else will you be able to exercise your gifts? How else will you receive the training that enables you to use your gifts? Now, I know many have life situations that makes serving Christ's church more difficult. But consider Christ. Consider your calling. Consider the church's needs. Consider the reasons that we've looked at today. Are they not enough for you to find some way to minister your gifts? To move past superficial barriers? Yes, there are barriers. Yes, there is busyness. But isn't it important enough? You don't have to be part of a formal ministry. You don't have to be appointed a deacon. But you do need to minister. Christ wouldn't give you a gift and then make it impossible for you to use it. Now, Some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, I do want to serve, but I need to grow in the faith first. And it is laudable to desire to grow in the faith. But there's actually a false choice being presented in that statement. You don't have to choose between learning and serving. I'm sorry, I can only do one or the other. No, you can do both. I mean, you can arrange your schedule or your type of service that you're doing in such a way that you can learn at certain times and serve at other times, especially if you've got a rotation of people to help you. And besides, part of learning Christ, part of growing in Christ is actually serving Christ. If you say, i got to learn, but I can't serve, there's an aspect of learning that you'll never get. And if you're not sure how to serve, or where there's a need, or who it is that could train you in a specific area where you feel drawn, remember that God's designed for the church. He gave you leaders to help you with that. So talk to your leaders. Talk to me. Talk to the pastor. Talk to the elders. Talk to the deacons. Talk to mature Christians around you, and they will help you. They'll help direct you. They'll help you figure things out. 
don't try to excuse disobedience by ignorance. God, I didn't know where to serve, so I couldn't serve. He says, I gave you, I gave you leaders. I gave you gifted teachers. They were to help you with that. And remember, not every kind of necessary and important service in the church requires a formal title or special skill. Many important areas of service simply need a humble heart, willing to take on even the lowest task for the Lord's sake and for the sake of love. You know, part of our special gift, whatever gift you have, part of that gift surely includes your ability to do the lowliest tasks. Don't say to yourself, I'm sorry, my gifting is in a higher area. I can't do that. No, we're all specially fitted for lowly work. Above all, brethren, let's not make the mistake of thinking that church ministry falls only onto a particular elite group. The clear answer to our introductory question today, who has God called to ministry in his church, is you. Every one of you, if you know Jesus Christ. This is a blessed calling, and there is great blessing in our obedience to it. May you and I then obey this call for God's glory, our good, and the church's edification. Let's pray. Lord God, your wisdom for the church is so good. We want to conform ourselves to what you've called us to. Every part, serving, ministering, and also being ministered to by every other part. Lord, we know that there are times where we can minister more in the church and other times where things hinder us. But God, we want to minister. We want to serve because that's that's your calling for us. That's your design for us. That's our way to blessing, both personally and corporately. So God, I pray that you would enable our church to experience that, to have that blessing, that you'd move in us in such a way that we say, I want to fulfill my calling from Christ. Oh God, please grant that. Where sin, selfishness, faulty thinking get in the way, God, I pray that you would remove it. And that, that you would enable the members even now to be encouraging one another in this area, helping, instructing one another so that we can, we can reach the maturity that we really need. God, all of this is beyond our ability, but your power is at work within us. We depend on you. We pray, God, that you'd bring us the pass. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our last